thank you so much for having a conversation with me. Thanks for asking me and being <laughs> interested. Yeah. Um, can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah, so I grew up uh, in Hamilton, Michigan, in a little town called Bentheim, which is about, uh, it's on the west side of Michigan, um, kind of about halfway up the state, or, you know, a third of the way up the state. And I grew up pretty rurally. Uh, my dad uh, was, he came from a family of pickle farmers, um, but both my parents were anesthesiologists, so we had this funny mix of uh, farming and medicine in our house. And uh, the things that we ate, my mom was a really tremendous cook, and so... I, we ate most of our meals at home, and it was a mixture of things uh, like everything from a lot of pizza rolls and mini quiches from Sam's Club to, you know, these really amazing home-cooked meals of, uh, you know, venison. And my dad was a hunter, is a hunter, so uh, we had a lot of game. And my mom uh, went through this period where she got really fed up with having so much game meat in freezers and not eating it because we didn't really like it. Uh, and so she like put a moratorium on uh, domesticated meat in the house. <laughs> and so uh, you know, it was kind of that funny mix of some very wild things, some very traditional like hamburger helper, and then some things that were like, you know, straight up candy. <laughs> <laughs> so what does being a pickle farmer mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it is, so we, where we live, it's very sandy soil. And so uh, cucumbers grow really well because there's good drainage. And so we, where we grow pickling cucumbers and pickling cucumbers are um, smaller. I mean, they're the size of the ones you would see in the jar. They're, um, they have a slightly thinner skin and a slightly drier interior. So it makes them easier to preserve. So we, on a good year, would do like three crops so it would seed would go in um, you know late May this time of year and then uh, come to fruition harvest with a big combine and then redo that ideally three times through and then in the fall you plant to a cover crop of like rye or wheat right 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 and so when did you decide that food would be your career um, I, I don't know that I I don't know that I guess I made the conscious decision um, when I decided to go to cooking school instead of joining the Peace Corps. So I had been cooking in restaurants since I was sixteen, mostly because every farm kid wants to get a city job so they right. don't have to keep doing that stuff. Um, <laughs> at least in my experience, um, and so. Yeah, so I had always worked in restaurants and then through college worked at Zingerman's Deli, had stayed on and cooked with them, and that's where I went from front of the house to the back of the house. And I had always assumed I would go into the Peace Corps and then like I had lofty dreams of working for the UN or working with like, you know, and and all of those things still related to food and food security and um, health and things like that. And then um, I was like either Peace Corps or cooking school and my chef at the time, Roger, said you should check out Ballymaloo, which is in the south of Ireland. He had done his externship there and he's like, you don't need two and a half years of cooking school, but you need some foundationals that we can't give you. And so he sent me there. Um, yeah. And that was from Zingerman's? You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. How is it working at Zingerman's? I'm like a big fan. I have like yeah. the books about anarchist business. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, I fully drank the Zingerman's Kool-Aid like well into working there um, or pretty early on into working there. Um, it's a dream and it yeah. still feels like home. And um, in fact, one of the benchmarks for success for Refuge was like, I want it to be good enough that Zingerman's would want to sell it yeah. and not just out of a personal relationship. And um yeah, I mean, Paul Saginaw is maybe one of the most influential people in my life, and mm-hmm. he's less public-facing than Ari is, right. um, but his title is like the chief spiritual officer, yeah. and uh, all of, just all of these ethos of servant leadership, 
um, community-based businesses. And I always tell people Zingerman's was important for me um, for a lot of reasons, but one of them was it showed me the why and the how of what I wanted to do. And that was also that transition between thinking like Peace Corps, UN, maybe making a small difference for a lot of people. And what I saw at Zingerman's was making a, a large difference for a smaller number of people, right, right. Um, you know, between paying a thriving wage as opposed to just a livable wage and treating everyone with respect and, and treating food with respect because it's someone's work and right. all that stuff. Right. Yeah. And so when did you start farming? I started farming in 2009. So I had gone to cooking school and then moved. Eric I was living in Chicago. So we were in Ann Arbor at the same time. I moved to cooking school. He moved home to Chicago. And then I moved back and started working at um, restaurants in Chicago. But my cooking school is on a 100-acre farm. And so it was there that I was starting to toy with these ideas of making food that was of a place. And so um, I had kind of been kicking this idea around and then our mutual friend Jess had started farming for Zingerman's at the Cornman Farms and so he said like I think I want to have a farm but I want there to be some sort of food component with it so we started farming in 2009 to give it a go yeah and how did you find that great I mean it changed my life uh it also I know that I don't want to be a farmer um <laughs> and I have so much respect for people who do because it's it's a very thin margin work that's very hard and physical and very uncertain, um, but it fully changed the way that I cook and um, in a way that I'm, I'm endlessly grateful for. How did it change your cooking? Um, I, so before cooking or before farming, I was interested in vegetables, and, but I wasn't, I, I was still in the like big ribeyes and big things of pork, you know, whatever, um, and and then I started realizing the sheer diversity of textures and flavors within the vegetable category. Right. Um, and I was just around it more, you yeah. know? So it's like the same thing that when you're in something every day, you get to know it in this other way. Um, and so it gave me a lot of respect for how that food is produced. Like, you know, the fact that when we started, uh, you start the onion seeds or some of the first seeds to start in, um, when you're starting sets to go outside and they get started in February, they go into the ground, you know, in May or late April, they are in the ground until after the solstice and then they cure. And so then they're ready to eat like at the earliest, uh, at least for us, like kind of July-ish. Mm -hmm. And then they'll last ideally until the next round of onions. Like that's an entire year for this vegetable that is like so ubiquitous that it's often like a throwaway thing. Right. And then that's true for carrots and celery. Like mirepoix is this thing that was like the baseline and those things take so long to grow. Um, so it was that level of appreciation for it. Right, right, right. And so much of your kind of style seems to be vegetable focused. Like, is was that a conscious choice or? No, I think it was a form following function in yeah, some yeah, ways. Yeah. Um, that I, because we were around vegetables and we wanted to tell the story of our farm, obviously the vegetables were the primary thing on the plate. Um, and then I just fell in love with them. And, and then also, uh, and I have a story in the book where the first year of farming was maybe the poorest I'd ever been because we had put, I had put my savings into starting this farm and I had taken a job at a winery, just like pouring in the tasting room for extra cash. And they needed me to stay on for a couple of weeks before I went back to Chicago when my pie shop job started. Um, cause I always help bake pies over Thanksgiving. Um, and so I was like eating, we had carrots and kale and some eggs left from our chickens. And so I was eating those three ingredients every night and each meal was different and like really, really comforting and homey. But I was also dreaming of like 
all the things that I thought that I loved in food, like salamis and cheeses and, you know, again, endless pie. Um, and then I got home and started eating those things and I just felt like garbage. Yeah. And then I realized like, oh, this is now, I'm different. Yeah. I, like, or at least I'm appreciating, uh, I don't know how to say it. Cause like, I don't ever want to be like eating vegetables is better for you yes. than like eating cinnamon <laughs> rolls. Like that's, that's a trope that nobody really needs. Yes. Um, but at the same time, I know that I personally always wake up craving a cinnamon roll and if I eat one, I don't feel good. Yes. But if I have like a big breakfast salad with some sort of protein in it, like, you know, then I feel good the rest of the day. So yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. like, <laughs> no, I feel like I have this conversation on the podcast a lot where like people are like, they don't want to say that this is better, like make a blanket statement right. because why it's silly to make a blanket statement. And we all, you know, eat the cinnamon roll or eat the pancakes sometimes and stuff. But like that, like the idea that like it matters how you feel yeah, and not just. And that's what, I mean, this whole like wellness movement or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It just, it feels like a, there's not a questioning of like what people are trying to sell you when they're trying to tell you like this, uh, hot, yellow thing is going to make you feel better. (laughs) Um, but at the same time, it also requires people to be deliberate in their choices and to be honest with themselves. And I, I don't know, it, it seems very complicated and also like super classist and super like, uh, you know, gender tailored and all of those things. So yeah, the shoulds of eating feel really, uh, laborious I guess they are (laughs) no I've been talking to people about CBD a lot Mm. oh interesting and it plays into all these things Mm. that are bad in in the way we talk about Mm. what we consume and um, so there are people who just there's no real scientific basis for its like efficacy Mm. in in, like in certain things like maybe in treating childhood epilepsy Mm -hmm. and like maybe it'll help your sore muscles but then people are just like no, it's amazing. It's an, it's like an adaptogen. And then like, what is an adaptogen? I don't know. Like I, I haven't think, Googled yeah. this word yet, but everyone talks about it. It's like, well, it's like putting mushroom, like people are drinking mushrooms and all this kind of thing. Like, I don't know. Just all this stuff people just like accept without, yeah. and then I don't, and it's, it's silly. Yeah. And there's part of me that's like, if it makes you feel better, then do it. But that doesn't mean that it's going to make someone exactly. else feel better. And yeah. it doesn't mean that it erases the hurdles that other people have to exactly. feeling good. Yeah. And um, it's funny, I was just reading something about the placebo effect. And mm. it's still the like, you know, the number one most effective pain reducer yeah. is a placebo. And so like, I don't know. There's something <laughs> there that I haven't like fully thought through. But um, yeah. yeah. Well, people are always looking for a solution to something that's not just eating vegetables mm-hmm. right yeah. <laughs> like I work at a wine bar and I see people eat like they'll order like a little the food like these two arepas or something and mm-hmm. they're like a little arugula mm-hmm. like dressed in the middle and no one eats the arugula that's, that's <laughs> wild to me yeah I, it's like it's it's just but the and then but these might be the same people who are looking for something somewhere else mm-hmm. but then not eating that I don't know I mean yeah. so it's complicated to say that vegetables are better but they are you know yeah that's the thing it's like and I I do feel like there's there's got to be a middle line with that or a middle ground with that too where it's like um do what makes you feel good but also uh I I mean part of it is to me is like is it all just marketing you know like and I mean vegetables don't have right PR. They don't, and they don't have a lobbying group, <laughs> exactly. honestly. Like, you know, and, and part of that, I think that gets into some of those issues with the larger food system is that I, 
when we spend significantly less of our disposable income on food than we ever have yeah. in the history of the planet. Um, and there's nobody, part of why vegetable farming and dairy farming, well, I, farming all over, is having a harder time is that some of those raw ingredients, they don't have those marketing lobbies. Yeah. Like there isn't a carrot, I mean, there probably is a carrot grower association, <laughs> but it doesn't have the weight of a corner soy lobby. Right, right. And, um, so I don't know, all of that stuff is really hard. And so part of me says like, yes, buy vegetables because they are better. And I, those farmers need your, your yeah. dollars, you yeah. know, I don't know. It's, there's a lot there. It's a lot. Yeah. And it's, I, I try and like walk that line of like not being classist about right. it because it's difficult, but it's also like, you know, I'm, I'm not rich. So it's not mm-hmm. like, it's not like I'm like, Oh, like, you know, coming from some sort of high right. course. It's like, I'm coming from, Hey, it's funny when like be not being rich does put you in the minority in this world you know like one of the things I was thinking about with all of the like conversations about inclusion is we don't that often talk about economic inclusion and it felt very it felt very true to my experience but also um notable to me that the entire like first bit of the book is about being like freaking poor yeah and um and when people are like oh whole foods it's whole paycheck it's like yeah not if you buy the produce though i mean it might be slightly more than um for us we have a dominic's is the grocery store in mariano's um it's maybe slightly more than that but it's also almost all organic and there's a price association with that or I don't know all those things and so part of me is like well is it actually more expensive or is it just that the crackers are more expensive or the toilet paper is more expensive I don't know yeah no it's some you know it's a lot to work through (laughs) yeah totally but I mean I know I the the conversations about class and food are always so complicated and heated mm-hmm. and like people yeah, yeah. I, I recently got into well now I'm not tweeting anymore <laughs> but, yeah. but someone was like I, someone was talking about natural peanut butter and like not liking it and I was like oh but if you just turn it upside down like right. then the oil incorporates and they like blocked me and then someone <laughs> else was like you were food shaming because I said something about like palm oil being bad like I don't know and it's like but but you know palm oil like is terrible for the environment and like right. for ecosystems and like if you're I think this person was vegan. It's like, if you're vegan, like you have to think about these things. Right. And like, it's, I'm frankly like Smucker's makes natural peanut butter and it's mm-hmm. like $4. You know, it's not right. that much more expensive than Yeah. Jitty. And it's totally good. Yeah. Like, I like that peanut butter. I do too. <laughs> yeah. I do too. Um, and it's more available. Yes. Like that was a big thing about writing the book too is like, what are the things that are available across all of these spectrums? Because yeah. yes, I love koozie peanut butter, which is made in Grand Rapids and it's like my family always sent koozie nuts at Christmas, yeah. you know, whatever. But I, it's, it's not available right. everywhere. And right. so that excludes people from yeah. it. But yeah. So how for you, I, I'm curious about your sort of chocolate veganism and, um, is it where where does it come from for you or what why are you passionate about it um well i i like hardly identify strongly as vegan these days like i'm i'm much i i vacillate so wildly on this Mm -hmm. and like there there's probably an interview with me six months ago where i was like vegan vegan vegan. but like um i feel more strongly identified with vegetarianism right Mm -hmm. now just in terms of like the relationship to the farm, like two mm-hmm. farms, the relationship and like, and the relationship to an ecosystem and like what needs to f- happen mm-hmm. in order to feed ourselves and like what's a more honest relationship mm-hmm. with that. And I, you know, I do see like animal, I don't know, like animal human or animal farmer relationship mm-hmm. 
as like significant and like mm-hmm. not always inherently exploitation. Right. So yeah. it's difficult for me, but um, my my the reason I'm into this is because I just I I feel like it's the one way to um, I don't know to always talk about justice in in the in mm-hmm. the world and in the food system and I think I mean spiritually I just can't eat meat that's just mm-hmm. where I am but um yeah I don't know what my track is with veganism <laughs> it's yeah. just it's more it's a way to talk about politics and food it's a way to mm-hmm. talk about economics and food it's a way to talk about labor and mm-hmm. and um and the environment and not um uh, that that's what I've found in it. And yeah. also, I mean, I just culturally, I've always found it fascinating. Like mm-hmm. even from when I was a teenager, like, mm-hmm. um, I like many people found out about veganism through like Moby's liner notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I was like always, it always seemed like a subculture that was like fascinating and it always has yeah. political, um, ties. And yeah. so like, I'm really obsessed with like how veganism has evolved from like being this hippie thing to being like a punk thing to being right. like, um, to being like more of a wellness thing to being right. like and so where veganism intersects with all sorts of different politics and different mm-hmm. identities that's that's like my I mm-hmm. love that I'm like super fascinated by that but like uh, in terms of it's very just it's become extremely hard for me to say I'm vegan okay. because I don't know why yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated by that those challenges too because yeah. um, as someone who's not vegan you know like I, in some ways, you know, uh, I used to, like, do a couple days a week at a butcher shop where, like, veganism was just made fun of, like, right. so intensely. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, it seems like if you care about the environment or care about animals, uh, taking that stance feels really brave. Yeah. Because it's so, in- it seems very intense to yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and whereas, like, if people are like, oh, I don't, I don't eat meat because, like, animals are so cute. Yeah. And it's like, right, well, you drink milk, right? right. Like, they, like, take the calf yeah. away from the yeah. mother yeah. and then raise it for meat. Like, yeah. that's just the nature of yeah. it. Um, and so, I don't know, it feels like, it feels like a very deliberate line in the sand yeah. uh, that I really respect. Yeah. Um, and then for me, I think that there's uh, part of, being having spent so much time on a vegetable farm is realizing we had hogs and chickens and recognizing their role on our farm right. for soil tillage and fertility and all that stuff and then also feeling like our really like the exchange felt right. reasonable yeah um like they were safe they were protected they were well fed uh you know they're the most photographed hogs <laughs> you know uh and so and so that felt like a reasonable way to that that was the exchange um I don't know but it's also why it's really hard for me to like we don't uh bring feedlot meat into the house Mm -hmm. but then like I still go to mom and pop restaurants and you know I because I want to support that business or because it's like protecting some of that sort of culture and I know that they're getting like Tyson chicken you know so no it's super complicated but yeah I mean I just I see veganism as a you know a a really strong political choice mm-hmm. and like a um yeah I mean it's, it's a protest you know mm-hmm. of of exploitative systems is what yeah. is how I see veganism um but at the same time veganism has been used to to in awful ways by right-wing people sure. there are, there's like Nazi wings of veganism there's really? this, ooh, there's like conservatives who huh. are like 
maybe pro-death penalty, but then vegan, <laughs> and like, <laughs> and like anti-abortion would be very straight. Veganism huh. can be used in so many insane ways right. that it's complicated to say vegan. And yeah. so, um, but like, I think in my work, what I'm trying to do is like figure out the, 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 the real thing, right. but I don't know if that even exists. Right. So... Um, but it, you know, it's like more of a philosophical question. Like yeah. what, like if you're making these choices, they have a logical conclusion mm. in other for in other ways that you're living your life. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that logical conclusion is like the death penalty or being, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so like, I don't know, like, uh, it makes it exciting, but yeah, for me, like right now it, it's hard to say, like, I'm, especially cause I travel a lot now. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard for me to go into somewhere else and like make these demands on them. Right. Um, so I just don't anymore. I mean, my only demand when I'm abroad is I don't eat meat mm-hmm. or at war fish. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but it's, it's, uh, it's complicated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, wait, so to actually talk about your book, okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so it's called roughage mm-hmm. and I love that word, but like it's a word that I have always only heard, like, my mom say <laughs> when, like, you, you were, like, constipated. Uh-huh. Like, oh, right, yeah. So I don't know if... Totally. <laughs> so, like, that word for me, I love it, but, like, it's always, like, for me, it's, like, you need roughage. Like, yeah. if you're having stomach problems, you need to eat some roughage. It's funny because one <laughs> of the riffs that we had on that one, uh, our mutual friend Tim and I were joking about the title or, like, kind of going down that rabbit hole. He was like, what about the suffragette movement? And he was like, wait, that sounds like a bowel movement. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny that uh, you have that association. Too. Yes, yes. But um, so, uh, how did you come to that title? Uh, so it is. It, it's sort of multifaceted. Um, one, it's just playful, and I feel like a lot of food stuff takes ourselves very, very seriously. Yeah. And so it was meant to be sort of lighthearted. Um, and then also, it comes from uh, the very first round of dinners that we did at Bare Knuckle Farm, um, I asked, it was a friends and family dinner, and I was like, my dad uh, is sort of my um, favorite person to assess food because he's, you know, he's eaten at French Laundry, he's eaten at all these places, he loves food, and like food is such a part of our lives, but he also is just like not part of the food world, so it's a very like, I like his perspective a lot. So I asked, I was like, dad, I'm really looking for critical feedback to make these dinners as good as they can be. And um, he's like, well, you know, Abra, it's, he's like, it was a very good meal. Uh, it's a lot of vegetables. <laughs> and I was like, well, we're a vegetable farm, dad. And he was like, yeah, it's just, it's a lot of roughage. Maybe you could serve some bread. <laughs> and I was like, okay, duly noted. I, I'll take that into consideration. He's like, everything else is fine. Um, so it's sort of a nod to that, this yeah. idea that vegetables are drudgery and um, or that it's like purely utilitarian right. so that you get the fiber or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that was kind of where it came from. Um, and wanting to play against that, that I find vegetables very exciting and like fun and all of those things. And then for the spelling, of it uh it's 
fairly, this is like, sometimes I feel like I'm like a little bit dim in the world uh, <laughs> because I always, whenever I read the R-O-U-G-H-A-G-E, yeah. I read it as Ruhage, even okay. though like I know how to spell rough, right, you know, right, right. and like I don't pronounce that one weird. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. but in my mind, it never like sounded right. So then I looked up R-U-F-F-A-G-E and it was like, oh, this is a also accepted spelling yeah, of this yeah, word. Yeah, yeah. So I thought it was like, you know how you can spell gray, like with an A right. or an E? I thought it was just like that. And then uh, I didn't realize that it was like not exactly an equally accepted spelling oh. of the word. Uh, and so, yeah. In I, my head, this is the spelling. That's Okay, I'm glad to hear that because yeah. every so many people were like, can we talk about the spelling of this and like all of these things? And I was just like, I don't know why. And then, but also spell check kept underlining it like the entire book. Uh, and I was like, well, spell check is wrong. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) I decided that spell check was wrong. (laughs) That's really funny to me. Yeah. Cause in my head it's spelled this way and Mm -hmm. this way is, I don't know. It's just, it's much nicer. I feel. Yeah. And it's like roughly. Yeah. And the like real dirty secret of the title is that, um, we got a dog and I, my dog like was obsessively eating grass one day at the park. And I made a joke, uh, like, Oh, Eric, dog's just like me. needs to eat a lot of roughage. Get it? (laughs) Rough. Bow wow. Rough, rough. And, uh, he was like, cool. We're going home. And and so then it just stuck in my mind. So it's possible that all of this came from like a very bad dog pun. Uh, <laughs> That's but, yeah. Um, so how did you decide to do a book? So I started writing a food column for the local paper in Traverse City, oh, cool. Michigan about five years ago. And that was because we were going to the Traverse City Farmer's Market on Wednesday, which is also when the food section came out. Mm-hmm. So it seemed, um, it was, I had always been interested in writing. Um, I was an English major and enjoy writing and enjoy like having a different creative part of the food world and not just something you do with your hands um so I pitched it to them and started doing it and that's part of why the format for the book is what it is and that that column really allowed me to work through some of these ideas so it was every week uh, I would take a vegetable or an ingredient, it didn't have to be a vegetable, but an ingredient, and then talk about like either different preparation techniques but the same flavor profiles to show like how is poached asparagus different from roasted asparagus right. and, and what are you trying to achieve out of those two things or take the same ingredient uh, and the same preparation technique and then change the flavor profiles. So um, the best example I think is like the beet salads that are in the book, you know, I always steam roast beets and so I take those and then whatever you put with them can be as different as um, you know something that's a very northern Michigan Eastern European of smoked white fish and beets and caraway and um, sour cream or something that's like apples and walnuts and very fall-ish or something that's like a you know, like a curry spice yogurt and chickpeas or something like that. Like all of those things that can kind of travel that spectrum. Um, and so that's how it started. Right, right, right. And the book is like divided by vegetables, Mm -hmm. which is really cool. Um, how did you kind of decide which vegetables would make it into the, like the book is, it's like a tome. It's huge. And like, which is great. And it's like so beautiful. But, um, yeah. How did you decide what vegetables? Uh, mostly the ones that we grew. Okay. And so um, it wasn't, I knew that it was going to be a Midwestern based book without, so there were things that we don't grow. Like right. um, at that point we weren't growing sweet potatoes. Grainer Farm where I work now does grow sweet potatoes. And so I'm sort of like 
ruining the fact that there isn't a sweet potato chapter. <laughs> uh, but also then it's 465 pages. Right. So uh, Chronicle is like, you cannot add a single <laughs> page. And like, there's a whole Brussels sprout chapter that I like didn't really finish. And I like kind of forgot about it and I didn't put it into the manuscript. So then I was like, maybe I can just like sneak that Brussels sprout <laughs> chapter. And they were like, absolutely not. <laughs> so there's more to come. But yeah, all stuff that we were growing and, and wanting to really showcase even the most, uh, like things that are usually just a component in something else, like garlic, onions, ramps, celery, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and so that's how the, the selection came. Right, right, right. And you also have kind of a big pantry section mm-hmm. in the book. So what is the significance of the pantry, like especially mm-hmm. when you're focusing on vegetables? Yeah, so I think for me, uh, the strong pantry serves a couple of different functions. One, it's the ease of preparation. So if you have these, it's sort of like solving an algebraic equation. Like if you have one variable, which is the vegetable, but everything else stays consistent, it's really easy to get to the end result and to right. solve for that, that those variables. Um, and so having certain things on hand mean that like whatever vegetables you have in the fridge, you can turn into something pretty quickly. Right. Um, and then also thinking about, I felt really important to me for this book to be inclusive for anybody across um, class lines, regional lines, and just like access lines. And so I wanted the pantry to be something that you could always get at a small town grocery store or at like a corner store ideally. I mean, some things are like wild rice. I don't know if like your corner store has wild rice or not, but it's a, it's a part of all small town grocery stores where, where I am. Um, and so wanting to be sure that that list was sort of circumscribed so that it didn't feel like you had to go out and buy a bunch of stuff that you might not use again, or that you didn't have access to. Like I saw somebody flipping through a book um, and they were like, oh, this looks really good. Oh, Calabrian chilies, like no thanks, you know? And yeah. I, Calabrian chilies are delicious and beautiful things. Uh, you can also use like crushed pepper right, that you right, get right. from a pizza place, you yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. it's totally fine. <laughs> and, and so wanting to really tone that part of it down and it felt like that needed some explanation. Right, absolutely. And then also I just love condiments. Like I'm yeah, a real condiments person, you know? <laughs> because then you can put like roast anything yeah, or yeah, like yeah. shake anything up and put it like a couple sauces on it. so in your mind what is like the biggest uh misconception that people have when it comes to vegetables like you talked about your 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 dad's like joke about the roughage but Mm -hmm. um when people are like cooking vegetables what do you think they they kind of miss out on i feel like people still think that they're the like um the work that you have to go through to get to the prize right and um I wonder sometimes if that's because they're maybe they're harder to season because there's more nooks and crannies or something like that or like they change more with the salt I don't know exactly but it seems like often people uh feel like they're not doing it quite right and so there's like a little bit of a weird resentment there um or just sort of a a trepidation about it um so I would say that uh people feeling confident cooking them or uh being excited by them right 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 absolutely and so how I mean you've, you've touched on this I think before but like um working as a farmer and like still like being very involved in Mm -hmm. in a farm um how has that kind of influenced your thinking on people who choose not to eat animal products like Mm. i i think it makes me want to be a resource for them yeah uh and because i think that there's a natural alignment between people who are growing uh 
you know, plant-based food and people who want to consume that. Like, it seems like a pretty normal thing. But, um, but it is also interesting because I think, I think, and, and someone asked this recently about, like, what, what do you think being a farmer teaches people about food? And I think part of it is those little acts of celebration. And, uh, and I really believe in that for food, that it's a, it's a true privilege to be able to eat three meals a day. Right. And, um, and so that like excitement of pulling radishes out of the ground for me directly translates to being excited about having them at dinner. Right. And oftentimes I think another misconception about vegetables is a lot of people will say, but, but what's the star of the plate? And right. I felt that way before I was growing vegetables. Um, and I realized like it's it's a decentralization of right. the plate, which yeah. I really love. And so it's like being excited about the radishes with some sort of like thing to dip it in, like a you know butter is the mm-hmm. classic, or like something rich like that, and then um, something like a carrot that's really long roasted and has this like sweetness brought out of it, and is a totally different texture than like a tomato and cucumber salad, and that all of those things can live together, and you get to like eat all of them at one time, feels so exciting and joyful, um, and so and that also I think tempers like I think you're right about veganism and plant based eating being it has a element of a political act, and there's a joyfulness sometimes that that work feels like I feel bogged down by it like part of me is like who cares about this fucking book like the world's on fire (laughs) you know and I but then there is this thing where it's like it food is such a balm for so many problems um and it causes a lot of problems too but it's also it's a way for people to connect and I don't know, that feels really powerful to me. And that's why at Greener Farm, where when we do our dinners, they're all family style. I mean, a couple of the courses are plated, but mostly they're family style. And we live in a very purple area, and I, I have heard a handful of times, like, very heated political conversations. Like, one end is, like, talking about Bernie Sanders, and the other side is talking about Trump. And they still have to pass the platter of yes. stuff, you yeah. know? And they're, that feels like something that we need right now. Absolutely. Um, I don't know that anything was resolved that night, but they had to at least treat each other with dignity and that feels valuable. It does feel valuable. Um, And so what do you think that like people who don't consume animal products might be Mm -hmm. missing from what the, what, what the real, the reality of a farmer Mm. is? Uh, I mean, I think that there's, I don't know that there is a missing. I think that my argument for eating animal products or having animals involved in the agricultural system is that I think that they serve a very necessary purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is a natural fertilization. When we had hogs, they did a ton of our tilling and land clearing. Um, chickens, the same thing. Uh, pest management, all of that sort of stuff. So I think there is an element of going back to some of those integrated systems. Um, but I also think that we are such a meat-focused and animal product-focused society that I don't... Th- I think that you could be pro-animals in agriculture and still not choose to right. not eat meat without missing out on that. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think there's some validity to the argument of if you want to save it, eat it. You mm-hmm. know, in like some of these heritage breeds, especially of hogs and cattle... Um, but you can support their production without eating it. Right, I, right, I don't right. know. I, I think that there's there's less to be missed out on by avoiding meat products than there is to be very meat centric in my right. opinion. Right. Yeah. I think that's a great distinction. Yeah. Oh. No. I um. Yeah. I, I always have this complicated feeling because there's. I I recently like interviewed someone who makes whiskey upstate and like. Mm. 
they have their own farm and they're raising, raising like a heritage breed of pigs. And I'm like, that's so cool. Like, mm-hmm. because this, this pig that you're raising, these pigs that you're raising, you're keeping that kind of breed alive. Mm-hmm. And also they're part of the cultivation of the rye that you're mm-hmm. using to make the whiskey. And it's like this beautiful right. circle. And it's like, and it's all about like New York state terroir and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And like, it's really great. But then I'm like, Oh wait, but then they're eating the pigs. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, um, but yeah, no, but it, to find that compelling while still not wanting people mm-hmm. to eat, I don't know. It's, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. And I think that too, it gets back to, you know, making, it's a complicated line, like making choices for yourself and then advocating choices for advocating other people. is, is the difficult part. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that there's, I think that also to one of the sort of unheralded uh, benefits of veganism and also just being plant, uh, emphasizing, right, know, right. it seems like <laughs> even more like a uh, hippie dippy way to say it, but, um, is that there's a care and any care and deliberateness that goes into that thought is going to flow along the food chain. Right. And I feel that way about farmers too, that like if you have a farmer that has separated their asparagus stalks by, by thickness, that's a level of attention to detail that is going to carry through to other systems on their farm and probably means that they're going to be growing beautiful things. Right. And so if there is a level of care that you make in your food choices and people see that, even if they don't agree with it, it might make them think like, maybe I should be thinking about that. And if everyone ate less meat and better meat, and that was somehow an outcropping of a veganist mindset, I think that's a great thing. Yeah, um, And I, I don't know, I think all of that stuff can happen simultaneously. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so for you, is cooking a political act? Yeah, I mean, I think that everything is, right? Uh, and... Um, for me, that is mostly manifest around... Um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately about how do we reclaim the phrase pro-life? Right. Uh, because it's so, it's such a like uh, black and white term. Mm-hmm. But for me, the way that cooking is a political act is that I feel like I am truly pro-life in the sense that I think even the like most losery, lazy, doesn't work, uh, you know, person that is like, has no moral compass still deserves to eat and still deserves to be treated like a human being. Um, and I think that wanting to, to make food and protect people along that, and there's very few of those people, quite honestly. Uh, and you know, the idea of cutting SNAP benefits and making people like prove that they are looking for a job, like they're still poor, you know, like, and, and being hungry doesn't help you get a job and having to like spend, you know, three hours a week trying to upload like proof that you're looking Mm -hmm. like doesn't help you get a job and doesn't help you get food. And I don't know, that stuff makes me like really, really, I'm not a very hot headed person and it makes me really angry. Um, and I think about that a lot with rural livers too, because a larger the larger percentage of the population of rural dwellers are on SNAP than in urban centers. And so the dollar amounts aren't true, but the percentages. And um, this idea that we would make it harder for anyone to get food, it, it it's immoral to me. Yeah. Um, so I think that's how it manifests. And also just wanting to tell the stories of um, the people who are growing that food and respecting their labor. Um, you know, like 
100 years ago, 30% of our population were farmers, and now it's 3%. We have to replace 40,000 farm jobs every year just to maintain the level of farmers in this country. Um, and some of that's because of automation, and I get that, and there's lots of good technolo- technology um, that can be used, but if people don't understand what that lifestyle is, it feels harder to... Um, like understand their product right I don't know so that's those are sort of the ways that 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 comes together for me yeah thank you so much thank you for having me it's, <laughs> such a, it's a true honor um and and yeah thanks for being interested oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs>